0: you would turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55. Um, as you do that, uh, I'd just like to remind you like this, uh, going into the summer, we're actually going into a four-week series on God's Word. This is a series on the doctrine of Scripture. And last week, we heard from Chris Taylor, who preached from Psalm 19, and uh, he was preaching about how God's Word goes out to the entirety of the earth, and it is sufficient for salvation for everybody who believes. Next week we'll actually be hearing from our UF intern Jacob Durham, and he's going to preach to us uh, from 2 Timothy 3, 16 about the inspiration of Scripture. Today, from Isaiah 55, we're going to be looking at uh, the efficacy of the word. The efficacy, that is the power of the word to actually effect change in us. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, Lord, as we come to you today uh, before this sermon, we do ask that you bless us in the preaching of the sermon and bless us in it. Attending it and hearing it. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit be very active amongst us, convicting us where we need conviction and giving us comfort where we need comfort, Lord. And in all things, help us see our great Savior, Jesus. Amen. Like I said, we're in Isaiah 55 today. Um, You know, Isaiah, he... He's kind of a a big deal in the Old Testament. You know, his his book is huge. I don't know if you've ever read it. You should if you haven't because it has some of the greatest texts in all of Scripture. But Isaiah himself, he was called to a really hard mission, really hard mission. Um, You know, he preached for about 40 years to God's people. And um, his call was really to go out and preach Mostly judgment. That's a hard call. There was, of course, starting in chapter 40, a lot of light that comes into it, and he starts preaching reconciliation with God and uh, giving us a picture of the coming Savior. But much, much of his preaching was that of judgment. And as we go into Isaiah 55, it is important to note, though, that this is on the heels of the servant songs in Isaiah. What are the servant songs? The servant songs are these uh, couple of chapters that go through Isaiah in the latter part. It's starting in, uh, I think, chapter 42 is when we see the first servant song. And these are the great prophecies about the Messiah to come. God's servant is coming, and he is going to bring reconciliation. And we read a little bit in our... Uh, call to Worship, song, uh, Isaiah 49. That was part of one of the servant psalms. Uh, and in it, we see God saying to Christ that it's actually too light of a thing to just send him out to redeem Israel, to redeem Judah. No, he's going to redeem the world. And then we fast forward to that really iconic, that very well-known servant song. In Isaiah 53, where we see the prophesied Savior is one that is going to come. And as he comes, he is actually going to uh, take all of the sins of Israel upon himself. All of the sins of God's people will be put upon him and atoned for. Following that, we see Isaiah 54, which is this wonderful wonderful promise of love and restoration and a new covenant that's coming we actually the song that we sang for our assurance pensive doubting fearful heart it comes almost straight from isaiah 54 that's the level of comfort that he's giving and then we get to isaiah 55 now of course As you might expect, as people who have seen northern Israel ripped away, exiled by Assyria, as people who know their history, know their past, know their their tendency to go back into sin and idolatry, there is a question that's kind of reverberating in the back of their minds. Even hearing this great promise of restoration in Isaiah 54, that question is, Can he do it? Can God actually do what he says? Like, I know this is what he's promised, but isn't it contingent on something that we do? Will this actually come to pass? What if we screw it up again? And, you know, that's a question that all of us often have. You know, does the Lord or will the Lord keep his word? Does the Lord keep his word? Will he keep his word? Can he? And we think oftentimes, you know, I'm so sinful. I know my sin. I know how deeply I've offended him. And I know oftentimes he just seems so far away. What if this time I've sinned too much? What if this time there is no reconciliation? Will he actually save us? Will he actually keep his word? That's the question that we come to the text today. So, please stand as we read God's word today. God's word from Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that you did not that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that This is the word of the Lord. All men are like grass, and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But God's word stands forever. You may be seated. So... Those are are the questions that kind of reverberate in our minds as we live this Christian life. And it's the same questions that the people in the Old Testament in Isaiah's day were having. And it's, will will God actually keep his word? Is he powerful enough to do it? Will my sin interrupt that? And we're going to be answering those questions from the text in three ways. We're going to be looking at The word that's spoken, we're going to be looking at the word answered. And finally, we're going to be looking at the word empowered. So what is this word that God is speaking to the people here? Well, to really kind of understand that, we have to jump forward a little bit in the text. Instead of starting at verse 1, let's go to verse 3. We have... In verse three, it says, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Now, who is the David that he's speaking of here? Is he actually speaking of the literal David in the Old Testament? No, he's not. Actually, throughout the prophets, we see this, this identification as the coming Messiah as David, as the the root of Jesse, as the stump. And that's how we see him identified. And so the David that's spoken spoken of here is the servant from the servant, servant songs that Isaiah has already uh, preached. He is the coming Messiah. But there is a point for him actually referencing David here. It's not just that he's identifying the Messiah. That is part of it, but that's not all of it. He's actually taking us all the way back to 2 Samuel 7. And in 2 Samuel 7, if, if you don't recall, this is where God actually makes a covenant with David. David, you know, he, he goes to God through the prophet Nathan, and he says, Lord, I'm living in a great house, and you're still dwelling in a tent. You know what? I'm going to build you a house, a permanent dwelling for yourself. And the Lord answers him. And the Lord says, hold up, David. Do I actually require a house? Am I a man that I require a house? No. No. You you are not going to build my house. In fact, I'm going to build you a house. And this is what he says from 2 Samuel 7, 12 Through 16 says when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son and then skipping to verse 16 it says And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so he's reminding them, reminding the people of this covenant that he already made with David. And this covenant is still in effect. He's still planning to do it. And he is saying that this is going to happen. And he guarantees it. It's really awesome. He guarantees it in that second half of verse 3, he says, I will make my covenants with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love of David. He guarantees that this is going to come about because of his steadfast and sure love for David. And again, he's not talking about David the king, though he did love David the king. He's talking about the coming Messiah. He's talking about Jesus. And so, we go on to see a little bit more of this message that he's giving, a little bit more of what the spoken word is. Starting in verse 4, we see, Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel... For he has glorified you. What is he talking about here? He's talking about Christ. Jesus comes on the scene in the first century. And what does he do? He calls everyone to him. Jews, Gentiles, everybody. He is building a house for himself. He is building his kingdom. And this is the gospel. This is shorthand for the gospel. And that's what the spoken word here is. That's the word that God speaks to his people. He first gives them the gospel. And now we can go back and look at verse 1 and ask, you know, who is he talking to? Verse 1 says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, there are two senses here in, you know, as to who his audience is one is everybody who's hearing this everybody who's reading this it's everybody in the world that's his first audience we call that the general call of the gospel upon people when god's word goes out to everybody and invites them to come but there's a second more specific group of people that he's talking to he doesn't just say come everyone Though everyone can read this and everyone can hear this. He says, come everyone who thirsts. What does he mean by thirst? He means somebody who is thirsty for the gospel. Who actually recognizes their need. Somebody who recognizes that they need the water of life. Jesus picks up on this this passage in John chapter 4 when he's talking to the woman at the well The woman, he asks her to draw him water, and she's like, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew, why are you asking me this? And he said to her, if you knew who was asking you, you would have asked me for water of life, because I would give it to you. And anyone who drinks the water that I give them will have life and have life abundantly. That is the water that's being talked about here. It's the water of life. And the person that God is talking to is the person who is thirsty for for it. And further, he says, buy, buy without money. Buy milk, buy wine without money. It's someone who recognizes that God has something that they, they can't actually purchase themselves. And so he is offering it free. And this, this is the doctrine that we would call a factual calling. This is God calling his people to himself. And so the next question is, who responds and, you know, kind of why do they respond? Picking up in verse 2. God says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear t- and come to me here that your soul may live. He says, why is it that you spend your money on bread? Or why is it that you spend your money on things that are not bread, I should say. And this, again, Jesus picks up on in John chapter 6 when he identifies himself as manna from heaven, the bread of life come down, and it is the bread that when you feast on it, you are fully satisfied. That's the rich food of the gospel. It's feasting upon Jesus, his person, his work. Nothing else can satisfy us. Nothing else can. Doesn't matter whatever it is. Sproul says this, kind of addressing this same issue. Uh, You'll find the quote in your bulletin if you want to read it. I think the greatest weakness of the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program or a methodology, in a technique, in anything and everything but that in which God has placed it, his word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity, and that power is focused on the scriptures. So what's Sproul saying here? He's saying that everybody, all of us, believers and, un- and unbelievers, are all prone to this. They're all we are all prone to try to buy something that we don't need. We actually need the word of God. We actually need to feast on it. We need the gospel. And that is what we need. It says incline your ear. Hear that your soul may live. And so that. That's why believers respond. We respond so that we might live. Everything else in the world perishes. You know I, I just recited that passage from Isaiah That God's word stands forever. Everything else perishes. Men, plants, cars. Everything perishes. Except God's word. God's word does not. It is life itself. And it brings life to everybody who embraces it. Everybody who feasts upon it. So... The next question is How are believers, those thirsty and impoverished, how are they to respond? How do they respond? How do they answer God in his call here? Read in verse 6 Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. They're to respond in faith. They're actually to go out and seek the Lord. They hear him calling, they hear his invitation to come. Drink the water of life. Feast on the, the bread of heaven. And they're to respond in faith. And then at the beginning of verse 7, we see, let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And so we see it's not, it's not just faith. It's also repentance. Repentance. That we're to respond in faith, but also repentance. And really, that just makes sense. You know, as Luther said, faith and repentance are actually two sides of the same coin. That you can't have one without the other. Because as you have faith, you will see your own sin, and you will be moved to repent. And as you repent to God, that actually requires an act of faith. And what is this upheld by? It's upheld by this second part of verse 7. It says that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon it's upheld by God's pardon now what's that that's our justification and you know justification it's, it's a big term it's a term that I'm sure you're all familiar with it is how we have a righteous standing before God but it's not a legal fiction here it's not something that isn't true it's God pronouncing upon us, declaring once and for all in the courtroom of God, in the throne room of God, that we have been washed and that we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ and that that is how he sees us. Speaking of faith, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this. It says, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. And then it addresses repentance, and it says, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now, there are two things that i draw out from both of those. There's so much in each of those that, I mean, we could spend a sermon on each one, but just to focus on two things. In the first, when it's talking about saving grace, it says that we are to rest and receive Jesus. We receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. And repentance requires an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. What are they saying? They're saying that in order to actually respond in faith, in order to actually repent, we have to have an understanding that God can and will pardon us. That understanding that he can and will pardon us, that is part of our faith. We rest upon Jesus alone. You know, Luther, I I tried to find the exact quote, and I have lost the exact quote. I guess I deleted the email that I emailed it to me. But this is a paraphrase of what he said. He said, speaking of faith and repentance, if when you repent, if when you repent, all you are doing is going to God and saying, God, please give me a second chance. I've sinned. Give me a second chance. He says, then Christ's blood is of no value to you. Why does he say that? Because by asking God for a second chance, if that's all you're doing when you repent, then you're actually just asking God to let you have another chance to keep the law. And Christ's blood clothing you in righteousness and washing away all of your sins is of no value to you. And that's a profound thing when we talk about faith and repentance. Repentance is actually turning from your sin unto God with full assurance that Christ will be merciful. But the next question is, can I actually trust God to pardon me? You know, yes, he pardons in general. He pardons a lot of people. Yes, that's what the Bible says. But will he pardon me? Will he justify me? You know, I know that if someone had sinned against me like I've sinned against God, (laughs) I'd be out for justice. I would not be entertaining mercy at all. I'd be out for justice. Indeed, I might even go into vengeance. Because that's a massive weight of sin. Calvin Speaking on this, he says, Men are wont to judge and measure God from themselves, for their hearts are moved by angry passions and are very difficult to be appeased. And therefore, they think that they cannot be reconciled to God when they have once offended Him. That's the disposition of the heart that I was just talking about. When we have that question, will God actually forgive me? Will God pardon me? Am I justified? We are actually putting on God our thoughts, our affections, our motives, and we expect Him to act in the same way that we would. Let's read on verses 8 and 9. God responds to this. He says, for my thoughts Are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That is so packed, full of meaning. We're sinful, and we cannot know him. His thoughts are high, and ours are low. As high as the heavens are above the earth, our thoughts are earthly. His thoughts are heavenly. There's a huge expanse. He can't, <clears throat> sorry, we can't know his thoughts. We can't know his ways unless he tells us what they are. But he doesn't respond. I mean, that's the point of these two verses. He doesn't respond the way that we do. He has assured us that he will have compassion on us. And then the next thing that he says, after he says that he's the one that abundantly pardons, he says, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. They're much higher than yours. My ways aren't your ways. They're much higher than yours. And this calls to mind, you know, Psalm 103, verse 11. Uh, Psalm 103, it's a psalm that we use a lot of times in our assurances of pardon. Uh, But there's this one line, it's in verse 11, and he says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Those who are in awe of him, those who love him in that awed way. That is how high his love is. And so, the people hearing this, they would have instantly thought of Psalm 103. It's the same language. And he's saying, he's calling that to mind specifically that his love for them overshadows any amount of judgment that they could expect from his hand because he, they are his people and he is their God. He loves you. He forgives you in Christ. You know, But as good as that is, is the passage doesn't actually stop there. He gives us a glimpse of the power of his word after this. You know, if the passage stopped there, we might still have a a little bit of the question. You know, he has assured us of his love and compassion for us. And he's assured us that if we come to him in repentance, he will forgive. With that faith and repentance coin that I talked about. Yet, we might still wonder. And so he doesn't stop there. He... Goes on to verse 10. He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying just as it's inevitable that it, seed being planted in the ground and rain coming down and falling upon it and even snow falling to the earth, that even as that awakens life in the earth and brings forth sprouted grain, so too does the word of the Lord. It does not, will not, cannot return to him empty. When the word of the Lord goes out to a believer, It goes out in his power. It is empowered by the very Lord that created the earth. And it's with that power that it comes to you. Because his word is power. How did he create the world? Go back to Genesis. He spoke. He said, let there be light. And there was light. He spoke. It is his word that brought it into being. He spoke it into being. And that is because when he speaks, it's efficacious. That is, it actually brings something about. How did he accomplish salvation? Well, his word, Jesus, the word incarnate. Jesus became flesh and he dwelt among us. And as a man, he dwelt among us and he lived Perfect, obedient life that is demanded by the law. And then after living that perfect, obedient life, he went to the cross and died on the cross. A sinner's death. All so that he might perform this great exchange. Taking from us our sin and giving to us his righteousness. Righteousness. And how does he apply that salvation to us? He applies it through his word. Through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and produces in us what is needed for us to respond. He gives us a new life and a new heart. He gives us faith. He gives us repentance. How are we justified? We're justified, again, by the word, by a declaration of God in the courtroom In the throne room of God, we're justified, declared righteous by his word. His word brings it about. There's power in it. And again, we don't stop there. Verse 12 says, for you shall go out in joy and be led in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. What is is this a picture of? Of many things. But for our purposes right now, it's a picture of our sanctification. And a picture of our glorification. Our eventual glorification. How is it a picture of our sanctification? Well, it's, it's right there at the beginning. You shall go out in joy. Be led forth in peace. We now have peace with God. We've been fully reconciled to Him. And as the Lord works in us, He works that fruit of the Spirit in us. Through our faith. And we see that in the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness self-control. We have that joy. Not only that, the word of the Lord in its work in us, in our salvation, in bringing us to him, in wooing us to Jesus, in reconciling us back to the Father and saving us, it makes a name for the Lord. The word goes out and the Lord is glorified because of all of his work that he has done in us, for us. What God speaks, God brings about. It's efficacious. As he speaks, it actually effects, effects everything. So what does all this all mean? What's it all mean? It means, at a minimum, you know, this is your Bible. It's not a book of dead authors. It's not a dead book. No. It's not a book, a compilation of books written by dead people. No. It is the writing of the prophets and the apostles. It was written under the direct guidance of the Holy Spirit, what we call inspired. What does that word inspire means? It actually comes from the Greek. And if you break it down, it actually means breathed in. And the picture that we get here is that God breathed out his word. And the prophets and the apostles breathed in what God said and wrote it down. And this this book, this Bible, the scriptures, they are the very word of God. And it comes in power, just like Sproul said. Even this is powerful because this is the word of the Lord. It leaves the unrighteous without excuse before God. And it brings salvation to all who believe. We read in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God that brings salvation to all who believe. First to the Jew and then to the Greek. It is efficacious. And how how is this done? How is salvation brought through the book, through the word of God, through the scriptures. Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, sorry, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, how is the word made effectual for salvation? The spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word an effectual means of convicting and converting sinners and building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. That as we read the word, the spirit is at work in us. As we hear the word preached, the spirit is at work. And he is the one that makes it effectual for us. And how does he do this? Well, one, you know, if, again, if we go to the shorter catechism, you know, shorter catechism Three, I know I'm relying on it a lot, but it really is a, a good summation of all of our theology. And Shorter Catechism 2 says, what is the only rule of life and godliness? It says the, the only rule of life and godliness is the word of God. It's the only rule. It's our only defense against Satan. When he comes and attacks us, comes and tries to make us doubt our Savior and Lord, it's our only defense against him. Spurgeon says this, again, this is in your bulletin if if you want to read it later. He says, this weapon is good at all points, good for defense and for attack, to guard our whole person or to strike through the joints and marrow of the foe. Like the seraph's sword at Eden's Gate, it turns every way. You cannot be in a condition that the Word of God has not provided. The Word has as many faces and eyes as Providence itself. You will find it unfailing in all periods of your life, in all circumstances, in all companies, in all trials, and under all difficulties. Were it fallible, it would be useless in emergencies, but its unerring truth renders it precious beyond all price to soldiers of the cross. It's true. And it is the word of the Lord. And it is our only defense against Satan. Our only rule of life and godliness. The only way that we may glorify God and enjoy him forever. Is in the word. And why is that? Well it's because. The scriptures actually point us to the author. The scriptures. Point us to the author. You know, Jesus here is the author and perfecter of our faith, and the scriptures point us to him. There's this kind of reciprocal relationship between Jesus and the scriptures. You know, he, he constantly points to them. Whenever he's preaching in the gospels, he points to the scriptures of the Old Testament, and he says, this is God's word. But... He also says to us that the scriptures point to him. In John 5, 39, he says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you will have eternal life. But it is they that testify about me. And then half of Luke chapter 24 is all about how Jesus is the word of God and is in all of the scriptures. They point to him. To read his word is to read about Jesus. To hear his word is to hear about Jesus. And knowing the word of God in the scriptures is the only way, the only way to know the word of God, the Savior. It's an amazing thing that God has given us that he has actually recorded his word for us so that we might live, so that we might live. Amen. Let us pray. Father, you are majestic, majestic beyond everything. You are the only true good in all of creation. You are the only lovely thing. You, Lord God, are matchless. You are sovereign over everything. You are the most free, the most wise, the most caring, the most merciful, the most just, and the only holy being in all of creation. Yet, Lord, Yet, Lord, you have seen fit to draw us to you. You've seen fit not to leave us alone, but instead to speak your word to us. All so that we might have life and have life abundantly in our Savior, Jesus. Lord, we ask that you help us treasure this truth up in our hearts. Direct us always, through the Holy Spirit, to our great Savior and brother, our friend, our Redeemer, Jesus. And let us praise his name always. Amen.